You are now listening to the Power Hour. Brought to you by Outside the Culture. Tubman was walking around with a fucking nice shiny fucking dress on with a fucking crown on her head when she was taking slaves to freedom! <laughs> Queens don't always talk and look nice and polished. Being a queen has more to do with having balls to do what you weak fucks won't do! Tell them so. Welcome back, guys. It's your host, Jordy. And it's me, Trez. And this is... That, that wasn't good. That wasn't it. <laughs> and it's me, Trez. <laughs> and this is the Power Hour. We're back. This episode is going to be about some American history, y'all. Today... We are going to be talking about our sister, the mother of freedom, the ancestor, the one we wouldn't be here without, the one who went backwards and forwards, the one who saw the little dipper, big dipper in the North Star, hey! and led us to freedom, to freedom! <laughs> If y'all don't know who we're gonna be who we're gonna be talking about today, you should know by now. We talking about Harriet Tubman, baby. We talking about Harriet motherfucking Tubman. Harriet, bring him, the, bring him the freedom. Shotgun toting, nigga, you better shut your motherfucking mouth until and get we your get ass there, in Tubman. Line. And get your ass in line, but Tubman. You knock the fuck out. <laughs> the one who left and came back to get mo. Mm. Y'all ain't built like Harriet Tubman. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Y'all don't got what Harriet had. <laughs> to freedom. To freedom! <laughs> Harriet's story is one that we need to be telling the chillins. Gather around the fire. Generation after generation. We got to pass this shit down because this shit's crazy. Just to think about what she had to be thinking in those moments. I know. To be that brave. Ah, oh, man. To be that motherfucking tired. I just. To risk your motherfucking life for the unknown. Because it gots to be a better way. Mm. The road less traveled. Mm. You know, back in the day, they had a word. The gospel. Hmm. Mm. And it meant good news. So usually when you hear about the gospel, you know, you hear about Jesus and you know he passed or he came back a few days later and everybody was partying and that homeboy went up to heaven. But for me, ever since I have read this lady's story. This is my gospel. 
this is my scripture. This is my word. Hmm. Preach, brother. And so today, we're going to be talking about the gospel of Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. Grab your chillings. Grab your cousins, aunts, uncles, mom, dad, grandmother, grandfather. Grab your neighbor. And gather around. And gather around. Gonna make you a pie. Because Harriet liked a pie. Get you a good slice of watermelon. Because Harriet was a watermelon seller. She was when Harriet needed to get the coins together, she did what she needed to Harriet do to get was the coins hustler. together. Hello? Okay. Harriet Hustling Tubman. That's what they called her. If y'all have not listened to our Virginia episode or Virginia 1607 episode, that would definitely be a great, you know, it'll get your feet wet. If you want to listen to that before you listen to this, go ahead. This is going to give you a lot of context as to what developed in America. America was, was settled in 1607 in Virginia. Right? That's when those white folks came over. And we talked about those long-necked, wooden teeth, vampire-fanged. Rat-toting. Rat-toting. Virus-given. Plague having motherfucking killers came over and stole that land and they stole the land and then they went back to Europe and advertised it and said free land available like it like people were already living there. <laughs> so <laughs> fucked up. Just, that is so fucked up. They came here in 1607 and 12 years later. 12 years of slave. Exactly. 12 years after they had been here and mind you during and y'all will hear about this during that 12 years they barely made it they barely made it they brought slaves just when they had got a good footing they said listen you know let us bring some of those colors in here and put them to work in 1619 that's when the first slaves arrived this is before George Washington this is before they are just getting here, y'all. They ain't even had a whole generation give birth and grow up yet. And they done brought slaves in. So that just goes to tell you about the beginnings of America. So if we want to fast forward a little bit, less than 100 years after the first slaves were brought in, we have what was known as the Virginia Slave Codes. Mm. Now, the Virginia Slave Codes came about because a bunch of, a bunch of free blacks a bunch of enslaved blacks, a bunch of poor white people, they all got together, took up arms, and they scared the shit out them rich white folks. They said, you know what? We're putting an end to this shit. They came up with the Virginia Slave Codes. They said, from now on, you colored, you black-skinned niggers, you Negroes, your ass is going to be put to work. No more of that lollygagging and free shit hanging about. Mm. This was the first time that a legal distinction was made between white and black. This is the beginning of race in America. So as we talk about all the time, race has to do with the color of your skin. Ethnicity has to do with your culture, where you come from. Just like we have this big thing going on in the news right now with Whoopi. 
you know, we're not going to get too deep into that because we don't want nobody, you know, and I'm not an expert, but I do know the difference between ethnicity and race. And it's eating the public the fuck up because they don't know. Exactly. So this, the Virginia Slave Code is really what solidified this idea of blackness, right? Mm. So we're going to fast forward a little bit further. So now we're about 150, 160 years after the motherfuckers came in and stole all this land. This is when we have the American Revolutionary War. You know, they fight against Britain and, you know, they become their own country and they start making governments. A little bit after that, you know, George Washington is president now. As we know, George Washington was all about freedom, independence, let us wave the flag and all that bullshit, while at the same time owning slaves. There's a record of him complaining about his slaves because his slaves when, before he moved to Philadelphia his slaves kept running away to Philadelphia because Philadelphia was where you could be free the north Philadelphia was settled by Quakers you know but you know not the religious people that justified slavery with religion but there were some other people that were religious and they were like no our God didn't say that this shit was going on and so when they established Philadelphia, they say everybody here is going to be free. Virginia, Maryland, all those places are really close to Philadelphia. But um, all those places are really close to Philadelphia. So, you know, a lot of slaves will run away there. But, and we all know that when George became president, he moved his wooden tooth. Sugar eating ass. Sugar eating macaroni and cheese eating if y'all want to go back and watch high on the hog on netflix george washington moved to philadelphia meaning when he moved and packed up all his shit he packed up his slaves as well that man was living in motherfucking philadelphia he would pack all them niggas up every few months and take them back to virginia because if he stayed if he kept them in philadelphia too long They'd be free. So that about 20 years after that, we have the first fugitive slave law passed by Congress, which we'll talk about a little later. Mm. And then just a little bit after that, our sister, Harriet Araminta Ross Tubman. And that's her real name. I'm not playing. Uh, you know, y'all know I like to add on names, but that's, that's her real name. Harriet Araminta. Ross Tubman is born roughly 200 years after those white folks came here and stole that land. So that's just to set you up in the time. So by this time, slavery is thriving. It's basically the basis for all the philosophies, the, most of the religions. It's just, it's, it's, in, it's in the blood. It's embedded in the country. Like there's no way of getting around that fact. No matter what it's white here, people baby. want to say. It's in the soil. Exactly. It was here before the country even started and formed their first government. Which is so crazy because you broke get, uh, broke away from your last government. For the you, same goddamn thing. So you can go do it yourself. That's what it was really about. <laughs> you wanted to be in charge. So... Before we take a little break, I'm gonna give, I just want to say that a lot of the information that I'm going to be giving to you today is from a book. And this book is called Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom. 
and it was written by Katherine Clinton. Now, I will say that there's another book that I read back in the day. It was the um, biography of Harriet Tubman, and it's written by Sarah Bradford. And this was actually written, the white, it was, there was a white lady that was a friend of Harriet Tubman. She actually sat and interviewed Harriet, and they wrote that book together because Harriet needed money. So if you want to read that book, that is a good book to read. However, you know, it does just go based off of Harriet's memories of what she could remember at that time. This book that I read, again, called Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom by Catherine Clinton. This book has, you know, it's modern. So it has like a bunch of research, like not just about Harriet Tubman's life and different things that have happened. You know, she's like there's like information that her family has provided different kind of like family stories and lore but then there's also just like research that we know just about slavery in general so it just provides great context as to the world that Harriet was living in and what may have motivated her to do certain things so definitely check that out and just again I encourage everyone just to read about the different histories I know it's hard we talk all the time about how you know, the media is constantly giving us these fucking slavery, tragedy, um, fucking tragic, traumatic ass shows. But in a way, we do have to sort of dabble in it in a way and sort of be aware of it because for me, it, it was just interesting just knowing certain things like just about how the country was moved, how people were thinking and just about how so much of yesterday is so connected to today and like the same shit is going on. A wise person once said, in order to understand the future, you must first understand the past. Mm. If you want to actively make change and move forward, especially black people, and I'm not giving y'all options. This, this is a requirement. Mm -hmm. You need to know where we come from mm -hmm. so that we know where we're going. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I want to read a quote that kind of puts together some of like the sort of paints a picture of like the complexities of this time. So it says the children of the earliest Africans in the North American colonies were not always born into bondage. Some blacks came as sailors and explorers. Others came as indentured laborers and later were granted their freedom. A few of these went on to own slaves themselves, but free blacks continued in the minority and over time, racial boundaries became more rather than less rigid. Even after the prolonged battle for independence, when cries for liberty, <laughs> it's not a hood the way I said liberty, um, when cries for liberty rang throughout the countryside, Opportunities for both emancipation and free blacks diminished. Whites assumed the innate inferiority of those with darker skin and imposed their prejudices through custom and law. And so, again, just to paint the picture, we're just going to take a little break right there. And then when we come back, y'all, we're going to be getting into the gospel. Before we dive back into the gospel of Harriet Tubman, we just want to let you know once again that this is our season finale. Jordy and I are going to take some time to cook up some things for season two, which should be dropping sometime this summer. 
So please stay tuned to Outside the Culture. That way you can know when the Power Hour is back. And so we just want to thank you so much for tuning in to the shows. We hope you enjoyed the programming that we had. If you have any topics that you would like for JB or myself to cover next season, definitely reach out to us on our website. Our website is outsidetheculture.com slash power hour. All of our episodes are listed there. You'll find a contact form if you want to submit anything to us and we check it regularly. So we'll definitely have an eye out if you send anything our way. If you have especially enjoyed the programming that you've heard this season on the Power Hour, definitely leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. If you want to leave us a sweet little comment, we will thank you so much. We've already had one of our big fans, Miss Ross, leave us a lovely review and we appreciate it. And remember, reviews are free. It costs nothing for you to leave us a little love. And it means so much to us. And it definitely helps other people find our podcast as well. Now, if you really, really love us, then please feel free to send a few dollars over to us. You know, (laughs) production ain't free, y'all. Please hit us up on our cash app. Our cash app handle is dollar sign outside the culture. And again, that is dollar sign outside the culture. And for anything else, if you just want to talk, if you just got something on your mind, if you saw a pretty picture and you wanted to send it over, if you heard a beautiful song and you want somebody else to hear it, feel free to DM us on Instagram as well. The Instagram is at OTC Network. You'll be able to kind of follow along with any special projects or special releases. And like I said, you'll be able to reach out to us directly. We just want to thank you again so much for tuning in and we hope you enjoy the show. You are now listening to the Power Hour. Somebody see it. This is the Gospel of Harriet Tubman. Minta was born in Maryland, in Dorchester County, sometime between 1815 and 1825. We don't know exactly when. 
Her mother's name was Harriet. And they called her Rit for short. Rit was married to a man named Benjamin Ross. They were both enslaved when they gave birth to Araminta. And now Rit's mother, which would be Harriet's grandmother, was actually enslaved, captured from Africa and brought to America. So Araminta would be second generation. She would be a second generation born enslaved person. Living in Maryland as a slave was a little bit different from living in the South. And so from what we know from her family, Harriet came from a lineage of strong women that got to probably do things and take positions that slaves further south may not have been able to take. As we talked about before, she came of age during like the heart of like the slavery boom. Like when slavery was like, you know, they're selling slaves every new year's, like is everybody knows about slavery, like isn't even if you're not in a slave state, you know people that came to your state looking for free, like slavery is, like it just is, regardless of what white people want to say today. One story that we know about Harriet's mother is that there was one time that she thought that her plantation master was getting ready to sell her son to Georgia, which would have been deep south, which is, again, hard, hard, deep, different kind of slavery. He didn't want to force her, but Rick, she was trying all kinds of shit to keep this man from getting her son. They hit him in the woods. You know, they hit him with friends. There was like weeks where this man could not get a hold of this of the son that he wanted to sell. From this, we kind of know the mm -hmm. plantation masters were plantation masters. They did whip and do things like that. But they tried to resort to selling people off as like, you know, the very like, you know, last kind of thing because they knew the slaves would be upset. You know, they knew it was damaging. Usually what they would do was rent their slaves out. So instead of just selling them off, they would actually keep ownership of the slave and then just rent them out to different people to it work. Like working abroad. Yeah, yeah, and right. Going back home. So anyways, Rit's son, is, you know, she finds out that the plantation master is trying to sell him. She's hiding him. Uh, the plantation master, Brodus, they finally figured out where he was. They set up a trap to try to get him. That didn't work. So eventually he takes his ass over to Rit's house. And they say that Ritz said, the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open. So from that, we know that Ritz was about that life. Ritz didn't, you know, yes, she was a slave, but when it came down to the family, she was gonna crack a cracker's head open. So she was ready to die by her family. Yes. And so that kind of gives you a little taste of where Araminta kind of gets her spirit, her right? Spice. And so, as we know, slavery was very hard on children. As uh, Miss Catherine says in her book, slave children had every stage of childhood cut short from nursing onward. They were propelled into adulthood by slaveholders and patients. Many were sent to the fields as human scarecrows as soon as they were able to walk. Malnourished. So, and another thing that slaves had to worry about or just that black people in general had to worry about at this time was even if you weren't a slave there were white people that were going around kidnapping black people kidnapping black children selling them into slavery <laughs> like, not even to slaves. laugh but like 
insane. That's crazy. That's crazy. There was um, a group called the Cannon Gang around the time that Harriet was supposed to have been born, who had been doing a lot of kidnapping and selling slaves to Virginia and Maryland. And they had been going on for years. It was literally like a family operation and nobody found out about it until like this farmer, like a tenant farmer was on the land and found bones. So they had also been murdering slaves, they found out. Anyways, first time Harriet was sent off to work was when she was five years old. There was a white lady in the neighborhood named Miss Susan. She had just had a baby. She came to the plantation and she needed a young Negro gal to take care of her children. Araminta was sent off. No hesitation, because you know, that's what they did. This plantation master got he's gonna make the money off of the slave. It, it, like they said, as soon as they could walk, get to work. So she was supposed to be not only taking care of the baby, but taking care of a household at five years old. They say Harriet was so small that when she was holding the baby, she had to sit on the floor. Here's a quote as to what the experience was like. After a long day of doing her mistress's bidding, the five-year-old Araminta remained on duty at night. She was instructed to rock the cradle constantly to prevent the baby from disturbing the master or mistress. If the baby wailed, the mistress did not go to comfort her child, but instead lifted her hand to grab a small whip from its shelf to punish her slave attendant for negligence. One day, Tubman recalled, she was whipped five times before breakfast and her neck bore the scars from this incident for the rest of her life. When her wails awoke the mistress's sister, a Miss Emily, she was given a brief reprieve as Emily tried to offer assistance. And this is something that they say in the Sarah Bradford book was that, you know, the Miss Susan, you know, the, the mistress, she was real mean, but her sister lived at the house and so she would often try and teach Harriet Tubman things because she would be so tired of seeing the damn girl being whipped and beat. So, even though this woman, back to the quote, even though this kind woman interceded on her behalf, our mentor remained unable to please her mistress and was run ragged in the process. The young girl was returned to her family, severely debilitated, weak, and undernourished. Rit nursed her daughter back to health, only to have her sent away again as soon as she recovered. This became part of a pattern. During childhood, our mentor was hired out year after year, serving a variety of masters as a household worker. The mistress that she was working with used to always be fighting with her husband. Mm. So one day they was fighting, and here it was like, she looking over at the table, and the sugar just sitting on the table. Mind you, she ain't never had no sugar, no sweets, no nothing like that. Probably didn't even get fruit. So Harriet grabbed a cube of sugar, and right as she grabbed it, the mistress turned around and saw her. Harry said she already knew what the fuck was coming up next, so she just bolted out the fucking door. She bolted out the door, y'all. She got missing. <laughs> and then she hid out in a motherfucking pigsty for several days. From Friday to Tuesday, she hid out in a pigsty with fucking a mama pig and the baby pigs, and she was fighting the pigs for scraps. <laughs> Eventually, she ended up just returning because she was so sick. She was so tired. Like, she hadn't had any food. She had to go back. So, we don't know a lot about her childhood. Um, besides, you know, a few different stories like that. A lot of people say that she was sick a lot of the time. But I'm, I'm thinking a lot of people think because she was, you know, a young child exposed to all these extreme conditions. And so, um, eventually, when she was 12, 12 years old, um, she stopped doing the domestic labor sort of stuff. 
and she started working in the fields. She would work alongside her brother and she actually really liked working in the fields because she didn't like being under those white women all day and having them beating her and trying to make her, you know, a fucking house and so, you know, and a part of her work in, in the fields really developed like her bodily strength because a lot of people know Harriet Tubman for being like physically strong. Mm-hmm. Well, they say she was only five feet tall, but she was a strong motherfucker. She was, you know, lifting hay he bales. Play with her. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not want to play with Harriet. Another thing that we know about Harriet besides her being strong is that she was very devoutly Christian. And it's crazy because Harriet Tubman could not read or write. She couldn't read or write her entire life. So everything that she knew from the Bible was memorized from either being preached to her from the Mm -hmm. few times that she got to go to church, which wasn't often because slaves couldn't really go to church unless it was under white supervision or just like the Bible stories that were passed down to her. And so they also think that because she was sick a lot of the time and with her mother Rit taking care of her, that that was one way that they would pass the time is by her mom telling her Bible stories. Mm-hmm. So Harriet gets a little older, right? She gets hired out to this man named Barrett. While she's working for Barrett, a slave that she is working with, I'm going to call him a co-worker. A co-worker, I'm going to call him a bondsman because that's what they called him in the book back then. One of, one of the bondsmen that she's working with decides to go off, off the plantation, away from the work assignment, and this is a huge no-no. The punishments were very severe for leaving your work position. So Harriet knew that the overseer had saw him leave. So it was definite that he was going to be in some type of trouble. So Harriet decided that she was going to try and go ahead of the overseer and get this nigga and bring him back to the goddamn plantation so he didn't beat his ass to death. Um, She meets the young man. He's at a, um, a supply store. And so just as she gets to him, the overseer gets there as well. And so it's a huge fight. He's trying to get the slaves to go back. The slave just decides, fuck it, I'm running. The slave runs off. The motherfucking overseer grabs a heavy lead weight, like a paperweight. And he throws it trying to hit the slave that's running away. Harriet Tubman gets into the doorway and blocks it hits her in the head and apparently it was so severe that like it split her skull oh my god and she was you know she was a working woman so she wore a bandana you know all the time they said that the the bandana was cut like as if somebody had cut it with a pair of scissors that's how heavy and hard the weight hit her head he was trying to hit that boy and she was just trying to help a nigga out of course, this injury is severe. She's bleeding. They don't even think she's going to survive. They have her laid up at the plantation for weeks, you know, just bleeding and, you know, just trying to get her to come back. And for the next few months, it's just, you know, she's lapsing in and out of consciousness. And as we know, this is something that becomes, it's a permanent injury for her and something that affects her the rest of her life. People that she rescued talk about how sometimes she would just, out of nowhere, she would just, they think what it was is narcolepsy now by the description of what she had, where Mm -hmm. she would have vivid dreams. She would lose consciousness, like in the middle of a sentence, she would just fall asleep and then she'd wake back up and just start talking right from where she left off, didn't even know she fell asleep. And so, or periods where she would just literally just be frozen, like just, just stuck in what they call, call like a stupor, just frozen, just in time and space, not talking, not blinking, just there. And so people that she had rescued have even said that like, it was times where she would just go into one of these spells and they would just be like, 
okay, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, what, do, what are we supposed to do? Like, this is who the fuck y'all sent to come get us? Like, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's wild to think this is a lady. She couldn't read, couldn't write, falling out at any given moment. It was able to do so much. Mm. After Harriet recovers, she was sent to work for a man named John Stewart. He was a lumberman. So now she's getting into working with lumber. She's five feet tall, like I said. She's stronger than ever. She's chopping wood. She, you know, filling up trucks and shit. This is a strong motherfucker. And this is also where she ends up meeting her future husband, John Tubman. And John Tubman is a free man. They ended up getting married in 1844 when Armenta was thought to be about 19. Now, before Harriet was even born, there was a law that was passed, a Maryland law that stated that the status of a person's freedom or enslavement would depend on their mother. So if your mother was a slave and she gave birth to children, those children would be slaves. With John being free and Armenta being enslaved, it was thought that this was kind of, you know, like a real show of love and affection because, like, for them to be married, this man knew that his children would be slaves. If they were ever to have children, then he definitely wanted to have children. Um, Harriet gets married, and shortly after they get married, Armenta pays a lawyer $5 to investigate her mom's freedom because she had knew growing up that there may have been some sketchy shit. A lot of these times, the masters would either fake the slave's age because they would be like, okay, when you turn 45 when you turn 45 or 50, I'll allow you to purchase your freedom from me. But then they would be faking the slave age, making them younger, you know, so that they would, you know. And so anyway, she paid a lawyer, found out that their owner had been doing some dirty shit and the mom should have been freed a long time ago, but it had been hidden. And so it was really like a turning point for her because she was very upset. The book says, in the years before learning the truth about her mother's legal status, Tubman had been visited by powerful visions, waking dreams that she felt were sending her messages. Ever since her skull injury, she suffered from episodes that were likened to narcoleptic spells. She would fall into a stupor, which might come upon her in the midst of a conversation or whatever she may be doing, and throwing her into a deep slumber from which she would presently rouse herself and go on with her conversation or work. She might have several of these episodes a day. A day. Regardless of their source, the images that haunted Tubman were graphic and terrifying. While still in bondage in Maryland, she complained of a recurring nightmare of horsemen riding in to kidnap slaves, hearing the clatter of hooves and the shrieks of women having their children torn from them. Armenta herself did not yet have any children, but her marriage to John surely introduced fears for any child she might bear while still enslaved. So basically, she finds out her mother's freedom has been stolen. Mm-hmm. She's worried about her children that she may have with John. And her new love. And her, right, her new love. And so all these different things. And then she's also she's having these nightmares about white people coming in and just stealing them and taking them off to some unknown land. And so coupled with that, she was also having difficulty with having an actual child. And, you know, they Stress. don't know why. And this is from the book. At one point in 1849, Armenta began a lengthy prayer vigil, pleading for the soul of her master, whom she believed was immoral and unchristian. By this time, she blamed him for holding her and other family members in bondage illegally. First, she begged for Brodus's conversion to Christianity so that he would see the error of his ways and perhaps repent. In 1849, she heard a rumor that he was planning to sell her down the river and might trade a couple of her brothers for cash as well. So it was at this time that she decided to switch some shit up. And it says, Harriet said, I changed my prayer 
And I said, Lord, if you ain't ever going to change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out of the way so he won't do no more mischief. She expressed guilt, however, when shortly thereafter, Brodus did die. <laughs> she regretted her entreaties for her master's death and proclaimed that she would happily trade places with him. But this was really just a fog into which she disappeared before she faced her future with clarity and with determination. More than a decade before, another young woman in her 20s, Isabella Baumfrey, born a Dutch-speaking slave in rural New York, resolved her spiritual crisis by running away from her master and changing her name to Sojourner Truth. Hey, E-B-B-I-Shunama, glory to God. Hey, but I thank God. Yes. Yes, black women. Yes. She seized the opportunity for her emancipation in 1826 and dedicated herself to securing and protecting freedom for her children. Challenges within her own life and the cultural chaos of times convinced Sojourner Truth to embark on a career of anti-slavery radicalism and feminist persuasion. So basically, she ran around the country just telling her story, talk about how important it was for people to have freedom. She was also a black feminist, so they think that, you know, that Harriet may have possibly heard about her, and that was another thing that really inspired her to so you know what, fuck women this shit. Black women inspiring black women. That's yes, what I'm talking about. Yes, exactly, exactly. Just because Harriet was losing it, thinking that she should be trading places with this slave master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. I'm glad it was a black woman to pull her back exactly. in and let her know. <laughs> Harriet said, wait a minute. Because you didn't kill that man. You <laughs> right. said if, you gonna, if he's going to continue to do more mischief, let that, that means he had out. plans. Exactly, and the Lord knew. Or whichever... But I just, I really wish I could speak to Harriet. If there's one thing I would talk about, I would want to know, what does her God, what does her Jesus look like? Because it couldn't have been white Jesus. My my Jesus ain't even white, child. It couldn't have even been. (sighs) Ain't nothing around me white. So let's let's talk. So we know, like we said, we know that Harriet was worried about her children. Mm-hmm. We know that she was upset by finding out that she and her family should have been freed long ago, but she didn't really have a way to fight it. And we know that she was inspired by a lot of the anti-slavery movement that was going on during her time. Now we're reaching a point where Harriet has decided she got to go. And she's definitely got to go before they decide to sell her. It's believed that Harriet made her escape from slavery in September of 1849. Her husband knew that she was going to escape. He didn't want her to go. He didn't want to go with her. After Armenta made it to freedom, like many slaves, she changed her name. So she decided to take her mother's name, Harriet, Hmm. and she kept her husband's last name, Tubman. Because even though she had to leave that man... She still believed they were married. She still loved them. That was still her nigga. And she believed that one day they would be together again. A quote from the book, her escape in the fall of 1849 was remarkable. For one thing, the overwhelming majority of successful fugitives were men. But here was a girl in her 20s, venturing out of her home counties for the first time, hoping to make it to freedom on her own. That she made this treacherous and unknown journey shows the nerve and resourcefulness that will become her trademark. This is something that I thought was interesting. Like we said, she left in September, and by October 3rd, that's where we have the first wanted poster for Harriet. The poster was for the recovery of Minty. That was her nickname. She was aged to be about 27. She was of a chestnut color 
fine looking and five feet high. And, oh, they can talk about me. <laughs> but this is what is crazy because there's some other posters that have been found that mm-hmm. also describe her as like, as like handsome or like good looking. And so I was like, wait, Harriet Tubman might have been... She might have been a bad yeah. For that work to control. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Before Getting life. hit in the skull and. But this is even after that, they said she was still fine with that hip wrap on. That's what the real issue is. Right. Child, they said Harry Tim was fine. So. And she was strong. A little more. Um, uh, of course, what what Harriet did to get there to use the Underground Railroad, she had to travel at night, hide during the day. And they say this journey could have taken anywhere from 10 days to three weeks. And the whole time that Harriet was on this journey, she kept having a dream. She said she had a dream that she was flying over fields and towns and rivers and mountains and looking down upon them like a bird and reaching out at last a great fence or sometimes a river over which she would try to fly. It appeared like I wouldn't have the strength, and just as I was sinking down, there would be ladies all dressed in white over there, and they would put their arms out and pull me across. Mm. So she's ventured out after this long journey. She's made it to Philadelphia safely. And, you know, we really don't know very much about what she experienced along that first journey. We know it was hard. We know it was winter, and we know she made it. Glory to God! So, in the winter of 1849, Harriet made it to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This state is the first stop. That said, fugitive slaves still had to worry about being kidnapped by bounty hunters and slave catchers. Between June 1849 and June 1850, 279 slaves escaped Maryland alone, and Harriet was among them. That was the highest numbers of slaves to ever escape a state in one year. And so at this time, Philadelphia was basically becoming a mecca for free black people. They were thriving. Yes. And so a quote, Tubman stood in awe of the liberties black Philadelphians enjoyed and promoted. As early as 1688, members of the Society of Friends had protested against the traffic of men body. By 1776, Philadelphia Quakers expelled from meeting any members who continued to hold slaves. Black evangelicals may well have adopted forms of address, calling one another brother and sister from this sect. Which I included that because I thought it was funny. So, like, you have these these fucking white Quakers, you know, and they're very, you know, brother and, and sister and the spirit of the Lord. And so they say that they think that this is where black people get brother and sister from you know because mm. black people loved a good brother and sister back in the day and i was like that is so funny <laughs> and so um uh, going a little bit forward um mobility and economic opportunity were striking to a young woman aka harriet tubman where she had once been where her movements were controlled so during her first few weeks in the city Tubman might have kept to herself and lain low, fearing someone may have come and tried to take a back child. But eventually, she would have basically loved that large black community because she would have been exposed to so many different things, so many other people who were escaping slavery. And there's also like a black network. (laughs) In my mind, I kept calling this the Negro network, but it was basically just like niggas gossiping and just passing along information. The Negro network. The Negro network, (laughs) yes. We still got that today. Exactly. <laughs> Black Twitter. Child, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, like we say, you know, Harriet would have been exposed to a whole bunch of different things, like just 
learning about different abolition theory, meeting other people from the Underground Railroad, because like there's all these libraries and different shit. So she could, you know, walk in, just sit and listen. Again, she couldn't read, she couldn't write, but she wasn't done. But just to think, this was just a couple states away. And this is what I, when we were watching the Underground, the Underground Railroad, it's like I knew, but like for it to be right there. That's how it was when we were watching um, Antebellum. Let's not talk about that movie, child. That was something. Because that was in modern times, though, wasn't it? But. But, well, you're right. Same thing. Oh, you had to go through the woods to get. Same thing. Same thing. You in a whole park. And yeah, a national park. That blew my mind. Into something else. Uh, um. Once Harriet starts, you know, um, going on her trips on the Underground Railroad, she had to finance the shit herself. And she would do it by working in these rich resort towns. And so, like, I was like, wait, there were rich resort towns As already? I just, it just blew my mind at how so many different things like that existed I at one time. I think the part that's blowing my mind is that y'all is over here at this motherfucking resort town. Right. While these slaves is over here. Right. And then again, when we talk about capitalism and slavery, because the reason that these people are able to have these resort towns is because so much money is being made by the slaves processing the indigo, bats. cotton, rice. Child with industrial revolution and capitalism collide. So let's get back into it. So... At this time also, there's a lot of anti-black sentiment this building, right? But Harriet was there in the city and experiencing what was happening. She was experiencing the freedom, but she was also seeing what was happening as far as white people just acting a goddamn fool whenever black people were present. Less than a year after Harriet arrived in Philadelphia, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Law on September 18th of 1850. It was known as the Bloodhound Law. This law gave federal commissioner supreme power over fugitive cases. Basically, what happened was the country was fighting because you had states that were enslaved, states that were free. They were trying to figure out how to balance between them both. They started doing all these different compromises. One of the compromises mm -hmm. that they came up with was the fugitive slave law where they said, okay, so if a slave goes into a free state back then, before the law, then that was they were free. Like, you know, if the if somebody came and kidnapped them, you know, they could, but it was usually fought. Like, even in Philadelphia, whenever there was instances where slaves would be kidnapped and brought back to slavery, and the actual Philadelphia government would go and get those people and bring them back to Philadelphia and, like, actually fight them in court. But once Congress passed this federal law, and as we know, people, federal means the whole country has to participate in this law, the federal law said... Now, slave catchers have the right to go into these free states and bring these slaves back. But any, any people that are born in a free state can keep their freedom. You know, whatever. What slave is that? Like, it, right, very rare. This sent a panic through everyone. Because, of course, you have all these fugitives living there. They're scared that people are going to come get them. Harriet is among them. The prospect of the new fugitive slave law enforcement propelled as many as 3,000 ex-slaves out of their northern homes and into Canada within 90 days. I'm out, y'all. 
<laughs> so a lot of people, of course, were upset about this. Frederick Douglass was one of those people who was alive during this time. So Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, Harriet were all... The Holy Trinity. Right. All at, all apart at this time. And Frederick Douglass is upset, of course. He's saying, basically, um, y'all, the black people, y'all need to start taking up arms and start killing these crackers. Because as soon as we have enough dead kidnappers, I bet they turn this shit around real quick. Not the Malcolm X before the Malcolm X. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Frederick, he had his moments where he was about that life. There's a story about, there's a young woman who was so frightened. Basically, there's this lady. She's on the train, right? Mm-hmm. Black woman. She's on the train. And this is so fucked up. She meant to get off in the free state, but she missed her stop. And the next stop was a slave state. The lady was so scared of going to that state that she would have rather jumped off the train and died than have gotten off the train in that slave state. Luckily, the people on the train were able to save her and get her to where she was supposed to go. But it just goes to show, like, one, how close all this shit is and how easy it is to be a slave was, and then not You was free beaten. yesterday and today you were slave. Right. You, you was free in this time zone. You were enslaved in this time zone. So this was the world that Harriet Tubman came to freedom into. Eventually, she had some realizations, as the book says, Tubman's growing realization that all people of color, slave, fugitive, or free, born in the North or the South, were imperiled by the very existence of racial bondage. Racial bondage made 1850 a critical turning point in her life as her own journey towards personal freedom expanded to include the aspirations of all slaves. So now that she didn't free herself and she see what the fuck this country is doing, She's like, nah. I can't go without my people. Exactly. Exactly. And here, motherfucking, here, motherfucking Tubman come with the brilliant million dollar fucking idea. Mm. Mm. To freedom! (laughs) (laughs) So here we go, y'all. Let's talk a little bit about the Underground Railroad. We're going to visit First African Baptist Church, which was part of the Underground Railroad. Well, there has to be an opening for the railroad at some point. Because somebody's driving the train. It's not electric like what we have now. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't a train, maybe. Really? Like, you really thought, like, there was an actual train that took them through? No, I'm saying the... It wasn't, it wasn't a, train. a train at all. Just it's, they use it. That is that just is a, a euphemism, baby. It's just a figure oh, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking it was like widespread. No. It's almost hurtful to me to watch her be so dumb. It's a euphemism for people that are connecting together, connected, trying to work their way to freedom. Right. Ding dong! He's not talking about put 50 cents on the train or on the damn public bus. But it wasn't really a train. You had to sneak to the next spot. Okay. You had to hide and hide no, and I know, and I know that. the next spot. And this was a spot of the railroad. one particular person made it. They actually no. went down there and made it. How did they get it? Her grandfather, Jose Williams, just rolled over in his grave. It's not a real it's not a train. train. No, I'm saying, like, how did they even get through there? The Portia, it's not a real train. It's not a real railroad. No. In the year 1831, the legend goes, a Kentucky slave named Tice Davids escaped his home and headed for freedom in Ohio. 
During his flight, Davids was tracked by his master. When he reached the Ohio River with his master close on his heels, the slave jumped in and swam across. His master, trying to keep his slave in sight, was delayed by trying to get a boat. He found one and began to row across. But as he watched, Tice, Tice scrambled up on shore and basically vanished. When the master abandoned his search in a nearby town, he told someone that the slave had disappeared so quickly he must have gone on an underground railroad. And allegedly, that's the origin of the name for the Underground Railroad. So now y'all know, chillins. <laughs> y'all shout Thank out. Thank you, Tice. <laughs> yes, shout out to Tice. Tice made it to freedom, baby. And so basically the Underground Railroad was a grassroots movement. It had black people, it had white people. They were all working to move people to freedom. Many records of fugitives were destroyed after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law making it difficult to date a lot of the things that happened with the Underground Railroad. Because basically, you know, after this, it's almost like this abortion law that they just passed in Texas. Because the abortion law says not only can you not get an abortion, but you can't help anyone get an abortion. And you can go to jail. Some right. regular civilian can put you in jail. Yeah. For participating in an abortion. And any kind of, if a lady needs, if a lady got $199, and she just need one more dollar to get an abortion. If I give her a dollar, my ass is getting locked up. And I can lock you up and ain't got shit to do with me. Exactly. Yes. And so this was what that, that was what that law was like, right? It's coming so, back, y'all. Right. And so a lot of shit, they used to keep records, you know, almost like on the Underground Railroad show where they would write down, you know, the stories of where people going and blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. They did used to keep records, but after that law was passed, they just started burning everything. Burn it uh, all down. Right. <laughs> they want no motherfucking like evidence. Like the FBI coming in. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It was definitely giving shred it all. And so, um, another thing about it was these people that were helping on the Underground Railroad, even though black people were involved, a lot of people that were involved were white, and a lot of people that really had the resources to move the slaves were white men. They were basically separated into two groups. You had the conductors and, you know, the station masters, and these are just the solitary people. These would be, for example, if I'm trying to escape, then I would go to a station master. I would stay at his house. You know, he would feed me or whatever, just provide me with the resources I need for however long. And then he would let me know when it was safe to go to the next place. But beyond the next place, he didn't know anything else because it was a very decentralized. As it should, and the so more you know. The more you're liable to get your motherfucking well, head chopped off. torturing your ass, you're going to tell exactly. it all. You need to know basically. Exactly. This your stop. This is all you need to know. Right. And so you Period. had those Smart. people, and then you had a different group of people who were called the abductors. These are the people that were actually going out to lead the slaves back to freedom. So they were, you know, you know, the ones that's doing disguises and motherfucking, you know, hiring motherfucking different carts with secret compartments and, you know, going onto the plantations and telling they the slaves the when field. to meet. But the thing was, again, all of the abductors up to this point that we know about had been white men. And they, a lot of them had a very Indiana Jones attitude, you know. They were very, you know, I'm, I want to, let's get, you know, let's free the whole plantation at one time. And we're going to, you know, burn, you know, very, so roll. <laughs> very white men. And, you know, even though that they were doing what they needed to do in free slaves, a lot of them had very short careers because of how grand and how big, you know, and how much they were doing. In comes motherfucking Harriet Tubman. She's the only one that we know of that was not a white rich man with resources. 
Harriet Tubman came from nothing. Harriet Tubman came from the fucking fields. Literally. If anybody was justified to be doing what the fuck they were supposed to be doing, it was Harriet Tubman. And that is what's so baffling because the thing was to be an abductor, you had to be very savvy. You had to, because a lot of, yes, some things were planned, but you had to be able to do things on the fly because shit could change at any moment. And so just to read this, while all the men gained notoriety with their abductors during the 1830s and 40s, their careers could not match the fame that Harriet Tubman accrued with her string of rescues during the 50s, especially because she was operating after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law. Not only was she one of the most intrepid abductors, her status as a fugitive guaranteed her more acclaim than any of her rivals. Also, the fact that she was never caught enhanced her reputation. And just to read a little bit more about that, this is what makes Harriet Tubman's accomplishments so remarkable, as she was certainly the lone woman to achieve such a prominent role within the Underground Railroad. Also, she was one of only a handful of blacks publicly associated with these extensive clandestine operations to shepherd slaves to freedom. Again, she was the lone fugitive to gain such widespread fame. Her unique vantage point, being black, fugitive, and female, yet willing to risk the role of an Underground Railroad abductor is what allowed her to become such a powerful voice against slavery during the years leading up to the Civil War. And we'll see that because once she sort of takes a break from the rescues, she goes on like these almost like, what do you call it when you go around giving speeches? She basically, went, yeah, sort of. And just telling people about how fucked up slavery is. Oh, she was the new Sojourner the Truth. Yeah. Both was. Yeah, they was both out there. Getting the work done. Mm Mm-hmm. In a movement dominated by white northern males, how did a black southern female, once a former slave, become both an abductor for the Underground Railroad and a champion of the radical wing of the abolitionist crusade? Tubman was described by a black colleague as one of the most ordinary looking of her race, unlettered no idea of geography, asleep half of the time in reference to her illness, yet she used underestimation to her advantage again and again. She transformed herself from a follower of the North Star to a leader among her people. Hmm. And so I kind of want to take a break there before we sort of get into Harriet Tubman's first rescues and different things like that. I guess we can just take a little break. Y'all go get you some water. Get you some tea. Get you another slice of pie. Light you an incense. And we'll be back. We will be right back after a brief intermission from our sister, Mahalia Jackson. Make it over 
You are now listening to the Power Hour. Somebody say it. We are back. All right. So, so far in the gospel, (laughs) we have talked about how Harriet was born to an axe-toting mother after she saw and got more experience with how fucked up the world is. She realized she didn't want to live the rest of her life as a slave, and she got the fuck up out of there. And when, when nobody go with her, she went on her own. She made it to freedom. She changed her name from Araminta to Harriet after her mother. And she kept her husband, John's last name of Tubman. She still loved that man. And she just thought that one day they'd be together again. So now we make it to the winter of 1850. Harriet's been settled in Philadelphia by this point. She finds out that her niece Kizzy is about to be put up for sale. Kizzy's husband, John, got word back to Harriet, and this will be the first time that, not only the first time that Harriet returns to an enslaved state, but this is going to be Harriet's first ever rescue mission of saving another person. Harriet goes, she meets them, so she doesn't really go all the way to the plantation because she doesn't want to be recognized, but she does arrange for them to meet her at a certain place, and once she meets them at the rendezvous point she hid them out in Baltimore and then from Baltimore she moved them along second time she went back to Maryland was in the spring of the next year she rescued one of her brothers and two other men now this third time that she went back was in the fall of 1851 this time she was going to go get her husband and mm. Then, mm, yes it had been two years. Go get years. your man, girl. Right. It had been he two years. He was free, though. She... He was free. He was a free man. She had to go get him. So she had, you know, she had the home set up, you know, so she basically says she's ready for her man to come on home. Child, she goes to go get the man. She sent messages for him to meet her. He ain't meet her. And then eventually, once she did get to see him, he said that he ain't leaving. And then she found out... <laughs> Who he was with? He had remarried. And she out here honoring him, taking Mm -hmm. on his name, doing all this work. Mm -hmm. And it says, at first, Harriet thought that she would go right in and make all the trouble she could. But then she realized if he could do without her, she could do without him. Okay. This is the revolution of a black woman right here, okay? And listen to this part. This is the part that gets me. So she had to stay in hiding for a while, of course, because she was so close to the plantation where her husband was. Well, not that her husband was on the plantation, but he was close to the plantation that she was from. So, you know, she was in the area. So she had to hide out for a while until she could go back. Risk her life to go back and get this man. This Negro. This Negro. Oh. And so, you know what? She had a vision. From the Lord, from the spirit, from the spiritual realm. And she said, I'm not going to waste this motherfucking trip. So instead of bringing back that one man, she brought back 11. And she ain't even taken to Philadelphia. She took them all the way to Canada because she said she don't trust Uncle Sam no more with her motherfucking people. Mm. 
And all the people was go- from Philly was already going to Canada anyway. Period. And that and that <sighs> and that's how you get a motherfucker back. Mm. Well, we gonna see what happens to Mr. Tuckman at the end. It's not. We'll see. But so she ended up crossing the border to Canada to Canada for the first time in December of 1851. Now it's thought that on her way to Canada that first time that she used Frederick Douglass's Rochester home as a safe house. You know, her and Frederick Douglass was cool. And that's what I like niggas helping each other out. Because New York is not that far. Child, yeah. From Canada. Right. I've been so, in uh, Frederick Douglass' house before. Oh, okay. Oh! You was in the vicinity of oh. greatness. Oh, and on the other side of town, Susan B. Anthony's house. We'll talk but moving about on. That old half a later child over there trying to fuck up soldier her truth's money. Old raggedy bitch. Anyways, at this time, you know, Harriet is really stepping into a very confident version of herself. And at these at this point, she is she is willing to live and die for abolitionism. As the book says. She would return again and again to the South, cheered on by former fugitives, but never joined by them on her expedition. Mm. She alone took these risks, eventually bringing hundreds out along Liberty lines to freedom. Even with a concealed identity and clandestine partnerships, her above ground fame grew. With her spectacular achievements, she was likened to the biblical hero of her code name, Moses. From 1852, Tubman regularly made at least one trip a year, often two, deep into slave territory. She usually moved her cargo through Wilmington or Philadelphia, where she had dependable contacts. She also made connections in New York City and became well-known to Underground Railroad agents from the Mason-Dixon line all the way up to Canada. Nearly all of her abductions were in Maryland and Virginia, and she kept no record of her raids. She developed a pattern that allowed her to successfully ferry at least 10 fugitives at a time at least once a year. She kept to the back roads and never traveled by day while in the land of Egypt, quote unquote. One admirer noted, she always came in the winter when the nights are long and dark and people who have homes stay in them. Um, In fall of 1852, a year after she had took the last 11 people, she was working in Cape May, New Jersey, a luxury beach resort town. And I put in the notes, I put in quotations, I put resorts in the time of slavery. What a time <laughs> to not be alive. Because what the hell is y'all over here basking in the sun? And it's people that are just being, being be, treated brutalized. What? To... I just that is crazy to think about, mm, and mm, to think mm. about that then, and that they would just be frolicking. Mm-hmm. You they at the water park, and shit, now? shopping, eating ice cream. We and shit. be. They don't give a damn about us now. Didn't give a fuck. So eventually, Harriet became a very prominent figure within the Underground Railroad network, as well as the people that weren't in it. She used her prominence to entertain donors with stories of her success and rescues. One known story was of a rescue she made of two enslaved men. They had to cross a river they hadn't planned on crossing. Two men were afraid that they would drown. Instead of wasting energy trying to persuade them, Harriet walked across alone, leaving the men to decide whether they'd like to stay and die or keep it moving. Another thing, as we stated before, Harriet could not read or write. She kept photos of her allies as a sort of a contact book. 
It's so crazy how the universe works. Because this was at the time where photography had been developed to the point where they could print out like these little pictures. So instead of having to carry on this big hard ass, you know, fucking whatever the metal ass photo, it was it was little papers then. And so Harriet had just like a stack of paper that she would use as like her contact book because, you know, she couldn't write, couldn't read, but she would remember faces. And she would also use them like whenever she met like people that she hadn't met before, she would show them the pictures and make them answer who it was. And she knew if they knew those people, then those were good people to be around. So this is smart. Hello. Fucking innovative. Hello. Every time y'all put something in that contact book, Y'all better be thinking hearing. Right. So here's a couple of quotes from the book that just talks about her disguises. Once when she had to pass through a town near her former Maryland home during daylight, she walked the streets incognito. She had the sunbonnet on her face and then she also had two chickens. When she was approached by one of her former masters, Harriet yanked the strings on the legs of her chickens and they began to flap and squawk. She tended to the agitated birds, avoiding eye contact with the man who passed inches away from her. Harriet was nearly always prepared with a change of costume or some other diversion. Another quote. On another occasion, while traveling in a railway coach, she spotted another former master sitting nearby. Instead of panicking, she picked up a newspaper and studied it carefully. Because the former slave, known to him, was illiterate, he didn't take any notice of her and she made it safely to her destination. She crafted her expeditions with extreme care. White abolitionist Alice Stone Blackwell reported that Moses would use gospel music and spirituals to signal to fugitives hidden along the road. She directed them by her songs as to whether they might show themselves or must continue to lie low. No one would notice what was sung by an old colored woman as she trudged along the road. Although she might be posing as an old colored woman, Tubman began her career as Moses while still in her 20s and was only 35 when Lincoln was elected in 1860. And something else that we know about motherfucking Harriet Tubman is Harriet Tubman was a pistol-carrying woman. When on a mission behind enemy lines in a slave state, Tubman demanded absolute discipline. She was not afraid to exert her authority and forced everyone to toe the line. Tubman even carried a pistol and was prepared to use it, which earned her a reputation for toughness. There were occasions when circumstances dictated that she used force as well as persuasion. She recalled a particularly difficult ordeal when she had to shepherd a party of 25 fugitives who were losing heart during a grueling trek. At one point, they had to hide in a swamp all day long and well into the night, deprived of food, cold and damp, their resolve crumbling with each passing hour. One man said he was going to turn around and take his chances back on the plantation. Mm. Tubman warned that he could not leave. It would compromise the entire operation. He would have to stay with the group to which he had agreed at the outset. The other fugitives tried to coax him to keep on going, but when it was time to move forward, he refused. Tubman, quote, stepped up to him and aimed a revolver at his head, saying, move or die. He went on with the rest, and within a few days, he was a free man in Canada. 
She did it for him. In Sarah's book, again, Sarah's book was the book that was, you know, that was actually Harriet Tubman's white friend that wrote the book based on Harriet Tubman's This is what Harriet really said. So according to Harriet's words herself, what she told that man was, dead niggas tell no tales. You go on and you die. That sound more like Harriet. That sound like more like motherfucking Harriet Tubman. Dead niggas tell no lies. Dead niggas tell no tales. You gonna go on. Or you oh, gonna, gonna die. die. To freedom! <laughs> Cause you gonna die at that plantation one way or another. Exactly. So you right. can just, we can just speed this thing up. And so another thing that we know about Harriet, of course, again, that we always hear stories about is how in touch she was with the spiritual realm. And quotes from the book say that she could elude patrols and pursuers with as much ease and unconcern as an eagle would soar through the heavens. She had faith in God, always asked him what to do and direct her, which she said he always did. She would talk about consulting with God or asking of him just as one would consult a friend upon business matters. And she said he never deceived me. Tubman once visited Garrett's store and told him she was there because God said you had money for me. She walked into that, man, that into that white man's store and said, God told me you had some money for me. Where's my money? <laughs> and the man was baffled because just the day before he had received a donation because people that people that knew people close to Harriet Tubman would send those people money to give to Harriet Tubman. It's like donations. You know you better keep Harriet money. But <laughs> yeah, it popped right on up, baby. She said, I just I just had a feeling. The Lord told me that you had some money. And the crazy thing was not only the man had the money, she said, Harriet said that, uh, let me see. The man said, how much does thee want? And it's, Harriet asked for $23. And when he went to go pull the letter out, the letter had $23 in it. They say Harriet was in touch with that spirit, child. Give Harriet her motherfucking money. Mm-hmm. And another quote says, Fugitives reported that while in flight, Tubman might insist they stop for no reason and then strike out in a new direction. Only later would they discover that lawmen had been waiting to ambush them. In many of Harriet's own recollections, her faith provided protective intuition. Perhaps her guidance system was derived from Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in a way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with my own eye. Hey, Ibibi Ashanama! Tubman herself confessed, when danger is near, it appears like my heart goes flutter, flutter. She believed her ability was a kind of second sight, something she inherited from her father, who she said could forecast the weather and had predicted the war with Mexico. One of her admirers explained that Tubman was as firm in the conviction of supernatural help as Muhammad. Harriet was definitely peering into the other realms, child. That's what they say. And so, anyways. I believe her. At this point, she had ended up establishing like a home base in Canada because, you know, again, she was scared that motherfucking Uncle Sam was going to try and get her at any moment. So she would spend her holidays at home in Canada. And, you know, this is also where she would bring the other slaves. And so she was really building like a home base in Canada. So she had moved pretty much to Canada. Yeah. She was living in Canada at this point. Yeah. And she was building a home base there. She was trying to get all her family there little by little. And so this is when we sort of move into um, a time period where Canada itself, which Canada had slaves, right? But they got rid of slavery a long time ago. And they did a lot, depending on who you ask, they did a lot to encourage black people from the United States to come to Canada where they could be free. So, you know, they were open to the enslaved Fugitives, they're open to all of that. And so, again, you know, another reason why Harriet started um, building there. And there's a lot of black growth there. 
just to sort of let y'all know what was going on at this time. In March of 1852, Harriet Beaker Stowe, the writer, she released Uncle Tom's Cabin. And, you know, I don't know who, who all has read it, but it's pretty good. And it's just the story of slavery. It's just the story of these slaves trying to escape. Um, but it was it was important historically because you know how white people are. <laughs> they read the book and they were just like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You slavery is so bad. And, right. And so it was just a political uproar. So by the time you get to a few few years later, in June of 1857, Harriet made a journey back to rescue her mom and dad because her mom and dad had been helping enslaved people get free. By this time, her mom and dad were free, mm-hmm. but they had been helping other people who were not free get to freedom because, again, that's the kind of people that Harriet comes from. She went back to get them because she was scared that they were going to be arrested for harboring slaves. She got them, took them to Canada, to the base that she was building in Canada, and they lived there for the rest of their lives. And then um, later in about 1858-59, she was sold a house in Auburn, New York, um, by a senator, William Seward. And that's what she began using as her base here in America before, you know, getting people to Canada. So let's fast forward. I want to get into where Harriet Tubman starts her military career. Because a lot of people don't know that Harriet Tubman was a military woman. And by all standards, she's the first woman to lead a military operation. And it's kind of started with this man that she met named John Brown in Canada. And basically, long story short, actually, I wanted to, this is interesting. So let me not skip over this. So before she met John Brown, which is a white man, John Brown is a white man. A lot of people used to call him black, even though he was white, just because he was so down for black lives. Like, you know, he was just all about anti-slavery. Like, we wanted to live with, not just... If he was with Harriet, he was in that, though. Right. Like, he was like, I want to live with the black people. Like, I want to start communities with them. Like, this white man was, you know, about trying to bridge the gap. And so, before Harriet Tubman met this man, she says that she had a dream. And this is what she says. I was in a wilderness sort of place, all rocks and bushes, when a big snake raised his head from behind a rock. And while I looked at it, it changed into the head of an old man with a long white beard on his chin. And he looked at me wishful like, just as if he was going to speak to me. But before the man could speak, a crowd of men appeared and beat the snake down. That's the dream Harriet Tubman had before she met this man. So she meets the man. Like I said, John is all about that life. But not only is John about that life, but John is very much... Uh, John was ready to set some shit off. John's plan was to start an uprising. He wanted to start a war because he believed the only way that the slaves was going to be free is if they just all rose up at one time. But he wasn't good at organizing. He took too long to sort of do things. He kept delaying certain things. So when the day actually came... For him to strike the uprising and, you know, do this big operation where he's going to take over a plantation Mm -hmm. fell apart. He was also expecting to have Harriet, but Harriet Tubman was in one of her bad spells and she had fell ill and she wasn't able to communicate him to keep up with to even know when he was going to be launching his attack so that she could help. And so it's funny because the day that his attack happened, even though she hadn't talked to him, you know, she hadn't spoken with him. She says she had feelings that something bad was going to happen. John Brown launches his attack. It fails. And he's killed by a mob of white policemen. And so Harriet, once Harriet found out, you know, they say that she kind of went into a, 
a state because it reminded her of that dream that she first had before she had even met the man. But his she death did. What? He should have waited for Harry. Right. Just, let's just postpone it. He just, he had, you know, he just, he was, he was yeah. Yeah. And that, and which is great because it's the same thing that they say about the white abductors is that they was just so ambitious that that it was always doing shit that would get them caught. You know, mind and then you got Harriet who was just dotting all the I's, crossing the T's, you and know, she taking was actually months to in play it. and shit. Right. And so this really sparks her interest in at this point she was taking radical action. Just going to get the slaves herself was not enough. Now she was thinking military minded too. John Brown just passed. She's in Boston attending conferences. Um, Abraham Lincoln was just elected. South Carolina seceded. They were the first state to secede. And after that, other states joined them. Spring of 1861, Civil War starts. And that is when Harriet says, what the fuck can I do to get into this motherfucking war? According to the book, Tubman prophesied that a Union victory would deliver slavery's death blow. With the political machinery in motion, Tubman and her African-American comrades threw themselves into the fray to help shape the war as well as to help win it. She began by informally attaching herself to Massachusetts troops in May 1861, returning to familiar territory by slogging with General Benjamin Butler's men through her home state of Maryland. And they had her doing a lot of domestic work. Eventually, she ended up going back to Boston. The Massachusetts governor, John Andrew, who was another ally of Harriet's, asked Harriet to join his group of volunteers that they were sending to South Carolina. The governor wanted a woman that were going to go free some slaves that had been trapped in South Carolina. It was like a whole plantation, like major, huge plantation, hundreds of slaves. The motherfucking Confederates was threatening to kill them. They went down to try and free them. Harriet went down, she worked, she planned, she plotted. They said she worked as a nursing aide and because she was a volunteer, she would get special rations, you know, like extra food or whatever because she was a helper. Mm -hmm. And so the other black people were jealous because they were like, why is this nigga getting extra you food? Harriet. She said, you know what? I'm not going to take the extra food. And instead what she did, she started selling pies and different things like that. And she actually ended up using the money to open up a laundromat once she opened up the laundromat, she taught black women how to launder and do different things like that so that they could make money for themselves. Harriet. And not only that, Harriet was a motherfucking root worker. They say she knew all types of herbs and roots and she was curing niggas from dysentery and wounds. I'm going to give that to y'all. I'm going right. to let y'all have that. I ain't going to argue back and forth because God got this. And look, <laughs> now I'm making money. So a little a little bit after that, September of 1862, Lincoln read the Emancipation Proclamation stating that all slaves, you know, blah, 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 would be free under these conditions and yada, yada. But as we know, the war did not end after the Emancipation Proclamation. It kept going. There were still Confederate members resisting, still slaves being held. Harriet was tapped by one of the generals of the war to develop a network of spies. And so this is when Harriet gets her chance to do some real hardcore military work. She gets together a band of spies and basically creates like a, like we were talking about earlier, like a Negro network. Mm -hmm. And so she was using this network to deliver messages all throughout the South. She knew who was at what plantation, how many slaves was where. She that contact group. Exactly. 
Exactly. Again, the woman who couldn't read, couldn't write, and could pass out at any motherfucking moment that created a whole motherfucking spy network in the South. Now that she has this spy network in place, they finally start getting to the point where they start freeing these slaves. And there's this very famous story about the night of June 2nd, 1863. Harriet led a nighttime military operation up the Combahee River. It was a sneak attack in the middle of the night. When she got to a certain meeting point, several slaves got on board. They went up the river. They snuck attack. Basically came over, you know, the overseers, the guards, whoever was at the plantation. And the slaves, because of the Negro network, the slaves already knew to be ready. When you see this big cracker go down, y'all better pick up the motherfucking sticks and get ready to get on the goddamn ship. And so they did that the whole night, right? She was able to organize this to where it did not fail and nobody snitched. The whole night they went from plantation to plantation, burning down, freeing slaves, slaves getting on the boat. Getting more people and more people by the time they get to the last plantation. At this time, she freed hundreds of people doing this while she was doing this military operation. Hundreds. They need to hear it. Yes. Ain't no way they would have been able to get that done without her. Yes. And at first, they didn't even want to use slaves in the war period. They did, and then when they found out about Harriet Tubman, they didn't want to use her because they didn't. Tr- they were saying, "Oh, you know, well, how can she do this? And she can't even read or write, and blah 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 blah." But God. Mm. So another quote from the a book, just about her secrecy. Tubman's gift was again and again to make her appearance when the enemy least suspected, working behind the scenes. Unlike them white men, they like to be all big and flashy. We do all in the camera. Right. Federal commanders came to depend on her, but kept her name out of official military documents. Her missions were clandestine operations, and as a black and as a woman, she became doubly invisible. Because you know that you know white people can't see black people. Much of the information available was written up later when she applied for a pension, and again, much was lost. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Her efforts on the river earned her international acclaim. She continued to work leading raids and nursing until she fell ill in 1863. And then at that time, you know, she decided to take a rest. She went home in Canada and chilled out for a moment. Summer of 1854, once she was feeling better, she ended up going to Boston. And that's where she met Sojourner Truth. Her and Sojourner Truth actually met face to face, spoke to each other. Now she and... She as Sojourner Truth kind of didn't see eye to eye on Abraham Lincoln. Sojourner Truth was trying to get, she was trying to rally for Abraham Lincoln. And I really think it was one of those situations where Sojourner Truth was just trying to make the best of the tools that were available. Because Harriet does say that she, later in life, she did end up being a supporter of Abraham Lincoln. Just because, strategically, you know. It made sense. Right. So at this point in the story, like we said, she had been working in the war. She fell ill. She took some rest. Once she felt better, she visited Boston. She met Sojourner Truth. So, you know, she had her time in the military. And just to read a little bit about what it was like for her once her military work ended. During Reconstruction, which was the time period after the Civil War, Southern freed people and blacks in general became scapegoats, suffering violent backlash in the war's aftermath. Tubman wanted African-Americans to be granted the freedom and dignity they deserved, as well as the legal status they had won. For those who could not care for themselves or claim what they had a right to, Tubman would become a friend and a protector. She would dedicate her remaining years to this important mission. Tubman herself fell victim to the backlash. 
even as she was returning home a war hero. On the train heading north to Auburn from Virginia, she was roughed up while passing through New Jersey. The conductor decided that Harriet's papers must have been forged or legally appropriated because after she got out of the military, they gave her a pass for free travel because of her military work. And so basically the conductor didn't believe her. Tell me how this um, motherfucking black negress got a soldier's pass and they asked her to leave. You know, Harriet don't, you know, Harriet refused to leave politely. When she did, the conductor and some other men basically beat her down and dumped her in the baggage cart. And, you know, apparently she did suffer some serious uh, physical injuries, which would affect her later in life. But this was basically Harriet Tubman's welcome home. And like so many of her fellow black soldiers, she found no road rising to greet her as she made the long journey home. She and other ex-slaves could only imagine the harsh struggles ahead. The land of Egypt might be behind them, but they were not in the promised land. In the months and years to come, Harriet Tubman would enjoy only the most bittersweet of Victor's spoils. And so this really leads us to the last chapter of this great woman's life. The last chapter of Harriet Tubman's life is very sad, you know, thinking about how much she gave, how much she went through, how much effort she put into things. A lot of the years towards the end of her life, she was in poverty. She had a house. She had her house, you know, where she was taking care of her family members. She had freed all of her family members from slavery, literally gone down and got them, took them to Canada. She was taking care of all of them. She had a whole bunch of other slaves that had been freed. They had nowhere else to go that were staying with her. So she was basically running this big fucking charity home with no money. Sadly, she was the victim of a gold scam. There was a gold scam that was going on back then because they were switching to paper money. And so people were doing this thing where, you know, they would basically say, here, I'll give you my gold and you give me something else. And it was supposed to be trying like to get yeah, ahead. trying to get ahead. When it, Harriet was approached by these individuals, her and the people that she was living with were approached by these individuals. Harriet was supposed to go and meet these people with some other men. But somehow they ended up getting separated when they got when they were headed to the meeting point. These two black men child pulled a scam on her. Beat her to death, damn near, robbed her, tied her up, and left her out in the cold Canada winter. Luckily, the men that were supposed to accompany her ended up finding her, were able to bring her back. And it was because of this incident, because people, once people knew about it, they were like, God damn, like this lady should not be going through this type of shit like this. And so we did see more people starting to donate at that time. This is when her friend Sarah Bradford steps in. She has this idea to write this book with Harriet Tubman to raise money. She ends up raising like um, $1,200 from the publication of this book, which was huge to Harriet Tubman at that time. She lived in Canada and um, in Albany basically for the next 30 years or so. And while she was also struggling just to create an income for herself, she was struggling to get her motherfucking money from the military. They would not pay this lady. Part of what made it difficult was, of course, because she was doing a lot of secret undercover stuff that was not documented. But then another part of it was just prejudice. <laughs> like, you still, because America, just because this war was over, there were still people who did not believe that those slaves should have been freed. They were still in government and there were actual senators who were, they were trying to pass a Harriet Tubman bill so that this lady could get her money. And there were senators that kept denying it. So anyways, it was just a long battle. Luckily though, by this time in her life, she had remarried. She had found love. 
A little later in October of 1867, she learned that John Tubman, her husband, had been murdered in cold blood by a white man. And even though John's son was there as a witness, the white jury acquitted the murderer. So John... John should have just went with Harriet. John should have just went with Harriet. But... We all choose. We all choose. And it was after he passed away. She was a little bit sad, but she did see this as, you know... Because it, it is crazy. Up until this time, she still considered herself married to that man. And it was only after that she decided to get married... So, yeah, so after um, her husband, John Tubman, passed, a couple of years later, she ended up marrying Nelson Charles. And this is someone that she had met when she was fighting down in Jacksonville. They had fought alongside each other. Sadly, he passed away from illness um, in October of 88, so about 20 years later or so. So, you know, they only really had 20 years with each other. And that was basically the end of Harriet's life. Up until her dying days, she was always raising donations for the needy. Um, once people had been free, she started doing a lot of stuff for like free people's schools and, you know, trying to help develop different black communities. And they say eventually in March of 1913, Harriet fell ill and she had announced to her caretakers that she felt like, you know, it was her yeah. time. It was her time to go home. So on March 10th, 1913, Harriet gave her last words and she said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then she closed her eyes as she went on to glory. That was the life and gospel of Harriet Araminta Ross Tubman. Phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal.
Okay. That was a lot. That was. But it was definitely a story that needed to be told. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, as we wrap up Black History Month, I hope this inspires the new age revolutionaries to continue to fight, to keep going, Mm. to keep pushing through, keep persevering. Harriet motherfucking Tubman. I feel like this is why it should be called the gospel of Harriet because it's just like, after you listen to it, it's just like, oh my God. I think the, the parts that was really, really triggering for me was just her in touch with the supernatural realm and how she had so many disadvantages yet she was able to still be just so great you know can't nobody write your story for you but you Mm -hmm. Harry couldn't read or write they couldn't write shit for Harry and if they did she couldn't read it anyway but she made it through again and again and And especially in those times where the resources was limited shout out to fucking Harry Tubman man I aspire I, I really do I think that was another thing that really struck me too when I first when I was reading the Sarah Bradford book of just like the supernatural power of Harriet like that lady was oh no that lady had an energy of something flowing through her and she I think was we sensing. get those moments yeah. like where the universe collides with you where your spirituality just collides and it's just like you have no explanation why you should be doing what the fuck you're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. but it's something in you that's telling you to do it. And when you, you know, when you say yes and when you abide, you heap tremendous results. Mm-hmm. Because I've, I've felt it before. I'm pretty sure you felt a moment where you like, I got to go with this. I don't know what this means, oh, but yeah. I got I got to ride this train <laughs> until the end. And Let to think about you. riding a train into the end where there's so much adversity around you. And it can literally be life or death. Mm-hmm. And to still... Follow that and have enough faith to follow that. Mm-hmm. Child, they don't make them like Harriet. Mm-mm. I don't think they ever did. She was brutally beaten time and time again, and she just kept fighting. Just kept coming. I'm just gonna back. keep on coming back. You ain't stopping <laughs> shit. Somehow, seeing how in touch Harriet Tubman was with her own spirituality and spiritual connections made me want to be more in touch with my own in that way and by doing so my response that I had the first time I interacted with the, what I'm called the gospel was to renounce Christianity like an awful and not that I was ever really like a hardcore like going to church every Sunday Christian but I just remember after reading her work I was like we have Jesus we have this man which he's a story he's a myth Ain't nobody seen his footprints. Don't nobody know nothing about. He is just a story in our minds. Scientifically, you know, there's no proof that Jesus existed, which is not to say that the story of Jesus is not an amazing story. I love it. I think it's great. It's inspiring. There's a lot of good shit. There's a lot of powerful shit in the Bible. That's That's the thing. But for me, when I think about a story, Story that inspires me in the same way that the story of Christianity may inspire Christians. For me, I was like, if I'm going to be rel- basing my religion, my spirituality on a story, a, someone's journey, whatever, it's going to be this lady right here. I know she was here. I know her. If I want to go to her house, I can go to her house, sit there. I know what this lady did. I know what her energy is like. 
And to me, that was a point where I, that was a point where I was like, I'm ready to start a church about Harriet Tubman, child. <laughs> hey, baby, I shun them off. And I tell you, I tell you, I am fat up. And I can see that. And I, I think hearing about Harriet and knowing that Harriet was spiritual mm-hmm. kind of gives me peace. And mm-hmm. I can find solace in that because I don't believe I'm Christian. And when I was saying I don't think the Bible was all bad, I don't believe the Bible was that bad at all. I think it's all about interpretation mm-hmm. because everybody interprets things differently. Mm-hmm. And me and you could go to two different churches. They got the same book in their hand. Mm-hmm. And me and you can come out and wear two different sermons. And, I, and we have to also think when we're talking about a body of work such as the Bible, things have been taken out. Mm-hmm. Things have been put in, put it in. So it's not like we can say that my Christianity, if I did have one, would be mm-hmm. the same as Harriet's. I mean, Harriet might have a whole different Bible than what we have present and today. That's something that I think about too, because you know, again, Harriet Tubman couldn't read or write, and the, what she knew of the Bible was passed down to her. Which was why earlier I was like, you know, I would love if any, if I could talk to her about anything, I would love to talk to her about religion and because I want right because I'm like maybe her since her her version of of Christianity was not, you know, from a traditional source like the Bible or taught to her from like a church. It was more so sort of like a folksy sort of, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that does affect, you know. The interpretation. Right. Because like we, we hear what she's saying when she talks about Christianity, but we don't see what's in her mind. You right. Know? And I, I think we also, I think, and I, I think it's some beauty to that mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, we all have our feelings of how we conceive or and how we perceive information. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you have a book and like, well, it says it right here. It says that I'm not supposed to do this right here. I feel like you are putting more constraints on your life as opposed to somebody saying, I ain't going to do nothing bad to nobody. And I just don't want nobody to do bad to me. And God just going to have to deal with that. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's a feeling when you're doing something right. There's a feeling that you get down in your bones that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And when you do something that, you know, when you personally feel, I'm not saying what society believes to be wrong. Because there's things that society view as wrong that I don't think is wrong. Child. And there's things that we, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, I can't, when they say, oh, you hungry, you need to go into the store and you need to pay. If you walk out of there without paying, that ain't got nothing to do with me. Mm. That ain't got nothing to do with me. You know what I'm saying? So it's just like, we have to decide. We we can't just live by a book and think that that's the way of life. You have to have your own. You have to do what you want to do. And if you don't fundamentally want to do something and you do it anyway, I don't know if that's a good message to be sending. You should want to fundamentally be good because you fundamentally want to do good. I'm mm-hmm. not. I don't want to help you because this Bible told me to help you. I want to help you because that's what I fundamentally want to do. Shout out to Harriet because that was her motto. She did it because that's what she It was on her spirit to do it. And I feel like right. God in the universe, they react to what's on your spirit mm-hmm. to do. When you fund them, when you are doing something and you are passionate about it and you are genuinely helping people, that's when you reap the best benefits. It's all about your spirit connecting with what the universe is putting out. Mm-hmm. And that's when you reap the benefits of what you're supposed to receive, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. If you need, I know we all need to believe in something. I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that we need Christianity to get to where we're going. Mm-hmm. But I do believe we need to believe in a higher power, especially in the world that we live in today, when we have man-made people acting like they're gods. Child. You need to be connected to something other than these people around you. Mm-hmm. You need something else that's saying, I know that society is saying that this is right, 
But my spirit is saying, is yearning for more than this. Mm-hmm. Because society is often changing. Because society was saying that slavery was right. And if you hadn't had a higher power or you didn't have a, a higher knowing that something was off, you would have been thinking that that was okay too. Mm. And I'm so just blessed that Harriet, because from her story, all I'm hearing is triumph, 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 and hardship, 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 hardship. And for a person to go through as much pain and loss as she went to, to still have the discernment to say, I'm free, but let me go get somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's a level of selfless I haven't seen mm-hmm. in my lifetime. Harriet. Mm-hmm. To hear you. Mm-hmm. Well, y'all, we probably kept you long enough. Hope you loved it. Hope you learned something. Listen, find you some. If it's not Harriet for you, find you an ancestor. Mm-hmm. Open up a book about them, read about them, go to their house, go to the land they walked on, and get your connection with our people. Mm-hmm. Because if you leave it up to society to teach you, you ain't never gonna learn nothing. And you need to know where you come from so you can know where you're going. Mm. So I know this episode was a little longer than normal. <laughs> But we hoping that you learned something along the way. Mm-hmm. And you felt inspired to go after that dream, speak up, advocate for yourself, advocate for your people, give your people some grace, and keep on moving forward mm-hmm. like black people do. Mm. We'll be back sometime in the summer, the fresh slate of episodes for you. But do not go far. Do not go far. So make sure you're still following us on the Instagram. Make sure you're checking out the website. And we'll be back. We love you. Mm-hmm. We love you. Peace. Yeah.